Welcome to the Crimson Thread. I'm John Behrens, pastor of Restoration Messianic Fellowship in the Boulder-Longmont area of northern Colorado. Our website is crimsonthread.com. This study was recorded during our normal Tuesday evening Bible study. Enjoy the study. So we are in Hebrews chapter 7, and last week we finished down through verse 10, and I actually want to back up to verse 4 to make a quick point, and then we'll go on down through 11. Y'all remember we closed last time with sort of a rough outline of what's going on. And as I said last time, as you go through there and you're unpacking things in details, it's kind of easy to lose track of the big picture. What the writer of Hebrews is doing is he first off compares Yeshua to angels and notes that angels are higher than we are and that Yeshua is higher than the angels. And then he develops the idea that Yeshua is also one of us. He's our brother. Being our brother, he has become a little bit lower than the angels, according to Psalm 8. So he's higher than the angels, he's our brother, he's lower than the angels, and the whole purpose of that was to teach him humility, so that he would be able to sympathize with us when it came time for judgment. And then the next thing we, we went into is Moses. Yeshua being greater than Moses. The idea there was that the Torah, which was delivered through Moses, is authoritative, and so how much more then is the word of the Son of God authoritative? The next thing we went through is Shabbat, and the idea that the children of Israel didn't enter God's rest because they rebelled in the wilderness, and we were exhorted ourselves not to rebel so that we get into his rest. And now we're going to go into Yeshua as the high priest. We started that back at the end of chapter 4, and then we interrupted with a sort of a general bucking up and warning against apostasy. So now we're going to come back to him as being the high priest. Before we jump in there, there was one thing that we ended with, and that was in 7.4. See how great this man was to whom Abraham, the patriarch, gave a tenth of the spoils. And those descendants of Levi who receive the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers, though these also are descended from Abraham. So the idea is he's establishing a comparison between Abraham and Melchizedek. Abraham, of course, needs no introduction in a letter to the Hebrews, since the Hebrews are descended from Abraham and they know, know who he is very well. And so the idea that Abraham gave tithes to somebody else and then that some other person blessed Abraham establishes that Melchizedek is greater than Abraham. Since we're going to now tie Yeshua to Melchizedek, we've got Yeshua greater than angels, Yeshua one of us, Yeshua greater than Moses, Yeshua greater than Abraham. And one of the things that's going to be established here is his immortality. And that gets alluded to down in verse 8. Pick it up at verse 7. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior, the inferior being Abraham, the superior being Melchizedek. In the one case, tithes are received by mortal men. Okay, The mortal men in this case are Levites. So Levites receive tithes. In the one case, tithes are received by mortal men, but in the other case, by one of whom it is testified that he lives. 
and that is a reference to the resurrection. The resurrection is obviously a big deal, so we're going to tie Yeshua with Melchizedek, who is greater than Abraham, and we're comparing then the Levites, who are the seed of Abraham, with Yeshua, who is immortal. It's a very logical, orderly progression, but Paul, who I think wrote this thing, with his sentences is somewhat difficult for a modern reader to unpack, so it's useful every now and then to sort of pop up and see where we are. So now we're all the way down to verse 11, chapter 7 11. Now if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek, rather than one named after the order of Aaron? What he's alluding to is something that every Hebrew knows. They received the Torah, they violated the Torah, they got sent into exile. They are at this point on what I call the return from the Babylonian exile, and they are fixing to go out within a few years here in the Roman exile. So they are very well familiar with the idea that the Torah doesn't perfect them. They've got this Torah, which is perfect, but they can't live by it, so they wind up getting sent into exile periodically to cure the thing that they uh, had a problem with. So what he's saying is, the Levitical priesthood and the law as given by Moses, neither one are ever going to be sufficient to perfect the Hebrews. And because they're not going to be sufficient, what has to happen is a priesthood of a different order who is going to be the mediator of a new covenant is what's going to be required. That's where we're going. Actually, let me pick it up at 11 again and get a run through it. Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under, the, under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek, rather than one named after the order of Aaron? For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. What I am inferring that he means here, and he'll develop this down below, a change in the law is necessary because the Torah makes no mention of anyone other than a descendant of Aaron being a priest. So if we're going to have another priest, we have to have a change in the law. And so the question becomes, how do we recognize this guy Melchizedek or, or someone of his order as, as being a high priest whose sacrifices are sufficient to cover our sins? When the only mention of sacrifices is in relationship to the descendants of Aaron. That's where we got to get, and that's what he's laying the groundwork for, is to, to lead him to that point. Verse 13. For the one of whom these things are spoken belong to another tribe, from which no one has ever served at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah. And in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. All the priests are descended from Aaron, not from Judah. And the point he's making, of course, is that Yeshua is descended from Judah, 
Hence, he is barred from being a priest. And by the way, being descended from Judah, there is nothing other than this book of Hebrews who connects him to Melchizedek. So what we got to do is get this guy connected to Melchizedek. And that's what's happening. Verse 15. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. For it is witnessed of him, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. This last, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek, is from Psalm 110, verse 4. But now, look what he's saying. Becomes even more evident when another priest arises in like Melchizedek, who has become a priest not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent. Well, the legal requirement in the Torah is that priests had to be genetic, biological descendants of Aaron. That was the requirement to be a priest. And if you didn't meet that requirement, you couldn't be a priest. Didn't matter how much you studied the Torah, didn't matter how good a guy you are, didn't matter anything. If you didn't descend from Aaron, you couldn't be a priest. So what he's saying here is that Melchizedek does not meet that test, nor does Yeshua meet that test. But by the power of an indestructible life, for it is witnessed of him, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now remember, we started this hour talking about the immortality of Yeshua. Now he's coming back and talking about the immortality of Yeshua. Earlier, he has made the point that Melchizedek is metaphorically immortal. What do I mean by that? What he says is this guy Melchizedek just sort of pops up. There's no genealogy. There's no record of his death. So from a metaphorical perspective, he is immortal. Not saying that the man Melchizedek is immortal, simply saying the way he is presented in the Bible, he has no beginning and he has no end. So then he's saying because Yeshua is immortal, he maps in that sense onto this guy Melchizedek. And then in Psalm 110, it is said of the Messiah that you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. So you got to get Yeshua forever, right? You've got to establish that metaphorically Melchizedek is forever. You lay them on top of each other and the priesthood then belongs to Yeshua after the order of Melchizedek. Again, you see the argument he's making? As I say, unpacking Paul can sometimes be a chore. Verse 18. For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness. For the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. Now we're going to talk about this weakness and uselessness of the Torah. And Paul talks about that, by the way, in Galatians. Galatians 4, starting in verse 21. Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. And of course, you all know the story of Ishmael and Isaac. 
Ishmael is born because Sarah second-guessed God. And in the flesh, got a son for Abraham with a slave woman. Isaac is born through the promise of God. God made a promise with Abraham and a covenant that a son would come from his own loins. So that's what Paul is referring back to. Verse 24. Now this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Now Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free. She is our mother, for it is written, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear, break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor, for the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. In both Galatians here and back in Hebrews, and I, as I say, keep saying, I think Paul wrote Hebrews, he is in both cases saying the covenant at Sinai was inferior. And we have said over and over and over again in Midrash, and I'll give it a, a preview here, the problem with the covenant of Sinai was not the words of the covenant. The words of the covenant are just fine and they will never change. The problem with the covenant of Sinai is where it's written. And God had to write the covenant at Sinai on tablets of stone because Israel refused at the foot of the mountain to have him write it on their hearts. So the difference between the old covenant and the new covenant is not the words of the covenant, it is the place where it's written. We're all the way down, now back in Hebrews, all the way down to verse 20. And it was not without an oath, for those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath. But this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever. And again, that's Psalm 110. And the idea is priests are ordained by an oath of God. So the Levites, or Aaronic priesthood, became priests through an oath of God. Priests, according to the order of Melchizedek, become priests the same way. God is the one who designates who the priests are, not people. So God designated the Aaronic priesthood back in Exodus. God has designated the priesthood according to the order of Melchizedek in Psalm 110. Say so This is all very convoluted. So now we're all the way down to verse 22 in, in Hebrews 7. This makes Yeshua the guarantor of a better covenant. Okay, now he's going to explain why. And, and I've already explained what it means, a better covenant. The place where it is written is better, not the words. And, and I'll demonstrate that as we go down further. Verse 23. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. You know, he's the one of whom it is testified he lives, he is immortal. All of that was established previous to this, and that makes him able to be the guarantor of this better covenant because he does not have to be changed out when he gets old and dies. 25. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives, to make intercession for them. The idea is that he's always there, never takes a holiday, and is always there to make intercession. Verse 26. 
For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered himself up. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priest, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints the Son who is made perfect forever. Bunch of stuff there. First off, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law. What does that mean? The oath is the one in Psalm 110, which is written by David, which is hundreds of years later than Sinai. God was the one that gave him a Torah, and he made no mention of this priest there. So making mention of it then through David in Psalm 110 is an addition, if you will, to the Torah. The other part of this is, remember, one of the tenets of Scripture in the, in the New Testament is that Yeshua was without sin. And so what this says is that our high priest is innocent and unstained and separated from sinners. And then it makes the comparison with the earthly priesthood who had to take mikvahs, they had to purify themselves before they went on duty. In other words, having lived among sinful humanity for the part of the year that they were not on duty, before they did go on duty, they had to get separated from sinners. That involved a mikvah, sometimes it involved sprinkling with water that had the ashes of the red heifer, depending on what kind of impurity they were being cleansed from. But the whole point is, there were these elaborate set of rituals that a priest in the earthly temple had to go through in order to be fit to serve before God. And what it's saying is Yeshua, because he was unstained by sin, didn't have to go through any of that stuff. And doesn't have to go through any of that stuff. An earthly priest, you know, he goes home down to Jericho or wherever he lives and he spends a few months in Jericho and then he comes back up to go back on duty. He's got to get purified all over again. Yeshua doesn't have that problem. He is continually pure because of his nature. The other part of this little paragraph that we're unpacking here is sacrifices in the earthly temple had to be offered daily. It was a continuous process. Due to the nature of the priest and the nature of the sacrifice, which is his own blood, he himself being undefiled, and hence his blood being undefiled, it is sufficient to do that once. It does not need to be done on a daily basis. That's all in that little paragraph. 28. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priest, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. So again, we now go all the way back to the beginning of the letter where it establishes that Yeshua is the son. The son has been appointed as high priest. He is perfect. He only needs to do it once. And he doesn't need to continually purify himself because he is not subject to being defiled. Now we're in chapter 8. Now the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent, that the Lord set up, not man. He's going to expand on this more below. But this is the first 
intimation in the letter that there is a second venue of sacrifice. The first venue of sacrifice was the tabernacle in the wilderness translated to the temple. It's the earthly venue. The true tent or the true tabernacle is the one in heaven. That's the one where he ministers and what's going to be said here is he can minister there because he is a priest of a different order. He would not be authorized or eligible to sacrifice in the one on earth because he is not a Levite. This is the first place where we're making a separation between the two venues, heaven and earth. Verse 3, For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. So again he is saying here that by definition, a priest is someone who brings an offering. In other words, he's saying that's what the word means. A priest is somebody who brings an offering. Yeshua is no different. He also has to bring something. Verse 4. Now if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God, saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown to you in the mountain. If you read the Torah, which you all have many times, I would be hard-pressed with that set of instructions to come up with what they came up with. The only way those instructions make sense is if Moses in heaven was shown, all right, this is what you're making, guy. And Moses now has a mental image, and then he writes down a bunch of details, but the overall big picture is carried in Moses' head. Verse 6, But as it is, Messiah has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old, as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. For if the first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion for the second. Here's your key. Verse 8. For he finds fault with them when he says. So you have two covenants. The first one is faulty. The second one is not faulty. The thing that is faulty about the first covenant is the Hebrews who can't keep it. In verse 8, he finds fault with them, not he finds fault with it. So the idea then is the first and the second covenant, as I have said many times and said earlier today, is the actual words or the terms of the covenant do not change. The only thing that changes is where it's written. Hence, the first covenant is written on tablets of stone. The second or the new covenant will be written on hearts of flesh. And that's the only difference between the two. So verse 8. For he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming. And this is from Jeremiah 31. You all probably know this by heart. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Who is the covenant with? Israel and Judah. At this point, Israel has been gone for, I think, some 800 years. Disappeared. Went into the Sea of the Gentiles with hardly a ripple. 
yet the covenant is going to be made with Israel and Judah. So behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers, on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant, and so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. Ding, 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 ding. What just happened? Judah dropped out, except Judah didn't drop out. Judah didn't drop out. It dropped out of the grammar, and the only way that works is if Judah is now integrated into the whole house of Israel, which means that all of the, the ten tribes that have been in exile for all of these thousands of years are going to be returned, and the whole house of Israel will be together for this new covenant. So again, verse 10. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, for I will be merciful toward their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. The new covenant then is the words that are written on the slabs of rock come off the slabs of rock, they get written on human hearts, God reunifies Israel, Israel is back in the land, and he is their God and they are his people. He will no longer remember their iniquities. That's the new covenant. And as I have said many, many times, it also shows up for the first time in Deuteronomy 30. It also shows up in Ezekiel. It also shows up in Isaiah. It also shows up in Jeremiah, as we have just read. So the idea that a new covenant is a New Testament thing is not correct. New covenant was anticipated in the Torah and has simply been confirmed thereafter. Now, verse 13. In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete, and what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. Notice the tenses of the verbs there. It's important. I have said many times, and again I will say it again, we are not at this point living under the new covenant. Israel is not reunified. Israel is not back in the land as a reunified body. The Torah hasn't been written on our hearts. We can still sin all we want. One hopes that we don't want to do it very much, but we can. The conditions of the new covenant have not yet been fulfilled. The new covenant has been cut, and he'll talk about that down below when he talks about the blood of Messiah. Every covenant requires the shedding of blood. It requires the death of what is called a covenant victim. There is a victim that dies every time a covenant is made. Usually that's an animal or several animals. But the idea that something has to die and there has to be bloodshed, and when we say bloodshed, we're not talking about you know pricking your finger and a couple of drops of blood. We are talking about something dies and sheds its blood, and that is the blood that seals the covenant. 
So his blood has been shed, so the covenant has been sealed, and we know from Ephesians chapter 1 that we have an earnest or a marker or a claim check that we will be in the new Jerusalem under the new covenant, and that claim check or seal is the Holy Spirit. In order for a covenant to be in force, a covenant victim has to die. There has to be bloodshed. Yeshua's blood was shed, he did die. The covenant has been ratified, which is to say it is now sealed, if you will. We are not yet living under it, because all of the things that will happen in the new covenant, we can look around and we can see that they are not in effect. We do, however, have a guarantee, or an earnest, or a claim check, whatever term you want to use that we are in fact going to be covered by that new covenant and we will have a place in the world to come. That claim check or that seal is the Holy Spirit and Paul explains that in Ephesians chapter 1. Now, obsolete. Obsolete does not mean done away with. Obsolete means there is a new version available. So. For those of us who have been in the Army, we always operate with obsolete equipment because there is always new stuff coming out. And it takes a while for the new stuff to get out there where you can use it. Everybody here is using an obsolete computer and an obsolete telephone because there are new ones on the way out the day you buy them. You walk out of the store with a new phone and it's obsolete. You go back in a week later and you get one a whole lot better. That doesn't mean that your old phone isn't any good or doesn't work. Your old phone is perfectly fine. It works. It'll let you make phone calls. It'll let you text. It'll let you search the web and all that kind of stuff. It may just not have the latest bells and whistles. So when something is obsolete, it doesn't mean that it is null, void, and done away with. It simply means that there's a new version on its way. That's what the word means. Chapter 9. Now, even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness. For a tent was prepared, the first section in which was the lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence. It is called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place, having the golden altar of incense, the ark of the covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was the golden urn holding the manna and Aaron's staff that budded and the tablets of the covenant. All right, this is a mistake. If this translation is correct, and if the thing behind the curtain is the golden altar, and there is a golden altar in the earthly tabernacle, so you have three things in the earthly tabernacle in the holy place outside of the curtain. Okay, you have the menorah, you have the table of showbread, and you have the altar of incense. Those three things are in the outer court. Notice the altar of incense is not mentioned here except possibly in the context of being behind the curtain. So if it's the golden altar we're talking about, this is an error because the golden altar is not behind the curtain, it is in front of the curtain. Brian says that the South African version doesn't call it the altar of incense but calls it the censer. Of course, what a censer is, for those of you who didn't grow up Catholic or Lutheran or Episcopalian or something, is a mobile 
fire pan that you put incense in and you then walk through wherever you're walking spreading incense. Well, the high priest at Yom Kippur goes behind the curtain with a censer carrying burning incense. So if that's what's being spoken of here, then it's not an error. But we still then have the problem that the altar of incense is then missing. In the description of the plans for the tabernacle, there is no mention of the altar of incense. We only get the altar of incense when we actually build the thing, and that's when it's specified and built. Apparently, the Greek word can either be a censer or an altar. If it's a censer, going behind the curtain is a reference to Yom Kippur. Perfectly fine. But we still have then the missing golden altar. Let's go to verse 3 and get a run through the paragraph. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the Most Holy Place, having the golden altar of incense, the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was the golden urn holding the manna, and Aaron's staff that budded, and the tablets of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. Now on to verse 6. These preparations having thus been made, priests go regularly into this first section performing their ritual duties. But into the second only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. By this the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy place is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing. So the idea is the high priest only goes back there once a year on Yom Kippur. And that, of course, would lend credence to the idea that we're talking about a censer up in verse 4. When he goes back there, he has to take blood. And notice that he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. Now, one of the things that we've talked about very often is the idea that the sacrifices offered in the earthly temple, those that have anything to do with sin, there were lots of them that didn't have anything to do with sin at all. There were, you know, uh, peace offerings and thank offerings and burnt offerings and so forth. But the ones that had something to do with sin didn't handle the sins of rebellion, intentional high-handed sin. So the point that he is making here is that the blood of Yeshua, which he is going to describe as being qualitatively different, is going to cover those sins. Verse 8, by this the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy place is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic of for the present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices were offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of Reformation. Okay, I find that word very interesting. The time of Reformation. What do you suppose that means? Could very well mean hearts of stone turned to hearts of flesh. The other answer is the time when Yeshua returns and the believers will be raised up with new bodies. There is yet another possibility. I would say that it's the new heaven and the new earth. And that's an opinion. That's not thus saith anybody except me. I see the Reformation as when the old creation passes away and there becomes a new heaven and a new earth. 
that would seem to me to be the best event that we know of that fits the term Reformation. The other two answers are perfectly fine. Reformation might refer to the covenant written on the heart, and it might also refer to our Reformation as we get new bodies when Yeshua is ruling and reigning on the earth for a thousand years. It, it, any one of those would be perfectly reasonable answers. The one I happen to like is the new heaven and new earth, but that's just because that's the one I happen to like. So now we're going to go into the blood of Messiah, and we don't have time to do that justice in six minutes. So we'll pick up the blood of Messiah next time. Would somebody like closing prayer?